you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. Today, we're bringing you a special edition of Take Two to introduce you to the story of Norco 80, a podcast from LAS Studios. Norco 80 tells the story of a botched bank robbery carried out in 1980 by a group of misguided survivalists who wanted the money to build a bunker to wait out the apocalypse. What ended up happening was an all-day standoff with local law enforcement that resulted in 33 damaged cop cars, multiple people wounded, and two fatalities. Police felt they had been outgunned by this group of robbers and demanded larger weapons. When they talk about the arming of police in America, it starts here. It starts with the narco bank robbery. In the next hour, we bring you two conversations related to the events of the Norco Bank robbery, hosted by Norco 80 host Antonia Cerejido. The first conversation is on the history of survivalism and the other about how the bank robbery has shaped modern-day policing. Enjoy. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Hey everyone, it's A. Martinez. Welcome to Take Two on this Monday. Now, if you were around here in 1980, you'll remember the Norco bank robbery and shootout. Not only did it burn itself into our memories as a media event, like the SLA shootout or the OJ chase or the Christopher Dorner manhunt, it had some surprising after effects. And today on Take Two, we're going to listen to two episodes of the podcast that lays it all out. I'm Antonia Cerejido, host of the podcast Norco 80 from LA Studios. What's your full name? George Smith. Ryan Smith. On an early morning in May in 1980, a weak and frail George Wayne Smith surrendered to police on a mountainside in San Bernardino. You, you're aware I'm tape recording the conversation, right? Do you realize that you have a bullet in your back? Do you realize that, correct? possibility that you may die. Do you realize that? Yeah. With that in mind, do you want to tell me anything about what happened? George Smith was one of five men who planned to rob a bank. Their motivation was not simply to get money. They needed funds to help build munitions to prepare for the imminent apocalypse. 
This is George Smith's former wife, Hannah Palmer. He um, kind of got uh, into Revelation and the Bible and the Seven Year War, and uh, that was kind of some of his um, leading then, and he felt we needed to get ready for that. And I think that was one of the reasons he later wanted money to get a place out in the country to keep his friends and his family safe. While George and the other robbers' actions were extreme, they fit into a larger history of survivalists in the U.S., something I explored in my conversation with media historian Casey Kelly at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Long before Casey Kelly was a media studies professor, he was a kid growing up in northern Idaho. And in Idaho, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of people he knew were doomsday preppers. I had a number of acquaintances in uh, elementary, middle, and high school who bragged of having underground bunkers and um, stockpiling weapons. At the time, Casey didn't think much about it. I don't think we had a name for it until much later. Once he had moved away from Idaho and had become a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, a TV program put survivalists back on his radar. The Nat Geo program Doomsday Preppers actually is what began to pique my interest. Across the country, ordinary Americans from all walks of life are taking whatever measures necessary to prepare. I'm preparing my family for the total destruction of the power grid. The Yellowstone supervolcano. A financial collapse. And protect themselves from what they perceive as the fast approaching end of the world as we know it. This is Doomsday Preppers. So I think once I saw that that had made its way into the culture, uh, it was more than just a fringe movement, but something I thought that was worthy of our attention. Casey began studying survivalism as a social movement. He wrote a book that came out in 2020 called Apocalypse Man. Survivalism is not just an isolated community of people, but is also something that's really woven into American culture at a much broader level. What do you mean by that? Really, I think that survivalism is part of America's um, preoccupation with pioneer and frontier heroism. According to Casey, self-reliance is the central ethos to survivalism. And self-reliance has been a key aspect of American mythology since its founding. The frontier myth is a kind of uniquely American narrative that worships cowboys, adventurers, explorers, and conquerors. The lone, often white man who tries to make it on his own away from developed society. Casey says that's where the ideals behind survivalism really started. But it would change as the Industrial Revolution took over in the late 18th century. As people became more dependent on technology, more dependent on infrastructure, survivalism became about being ready to get by without those things. Our food and water systems may collapse at any given minute. This fear became acute after World War II particularly after a sort of idyllic idea of the U.S. began to be challenged. You see it begin in the 1970s when the myth of the American dream starts to implode quite a bit, when you have economic crisis, military crisis, and then environmental crisis. 
seeing long gas lines in 1973 uh, when there was an oil embargo against the United States gave us the sense that we uh, are vulnerable to our dependence on outside resources. I think that those correlate quite well with then the turn to survivalism. This era of survivalism is the one that George and the other robbers were a part of. I think that the 1970s in particular saw a, a resurgence of what some people have called paramilitary culture, which I think can be heavily tied into uh, America's defeat in Vietnam, but also just this broader sense of vulnerability. In the 70s, dejected Vietnam vets returned to a society that was ambivalent about the war. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. And so survivalists of this era, in particular men, weren't just responding to fear that the infrastructure they relied on could collapse. Casey says they also feared that the established social order in the U.S. was also beginning to crumble. This was a subculture. I think it was a kind of warrior attitude that people had, particularly white men who felt emasculated by the forces of the 70s, but also the movements of the 1960s, too. So uh, the success of civil rights of black power, of the feminist movement, all of these things that demanded at the most basic level just equality. A lot of uh, white men in particular felt that a lot of things had been taken from them. And so I think you see people retreat into gun culture, into um, you know martial arts and combat and guns. Those things become, I think, really important. This is also reflected in the mainstream culture. I think of a film like Death Wish, 1974, in which Charles Bronson takes to a rotting New York City and its ineffectual police force and goes after criminals himself, totally outside of the law. Uh, Same with Dirty Harry. We're not just going to let you walk out of here. Which is a kind of law and order film in which a lone male gunslinger has to go outside of the law to get justice. Who's we, sucker? Smith and Wesson? And me? (laughs) This feeling that came through in pop culture was reinforced by the national concerns of the time. And that perspective, that society was failing and that it was up to the individual to prepare for the worst, to protect themselves, is part of what drove George Smith to plan the bank robbery. In the next coming decades, several high-profile violent incidents involving survivalists would force the survivalist movement to change its branding. Thanks for listening to this special broadcast of Take Two. I'm A. Martinez. Stay tuned for more of our Norco 80 special. We'll be right back after this break. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Hey everyone, A. Martinez back with you on Take Two. Hope your Monday is going great. Over the past couple of years, our podcast division, LAS Studios, has been in overdrive. With podcasts such as California City, The Big One, California Love, Repeat, and the podcast that we're sampling today, that's Norco 80. They're shows that keep you engaged with Southern California, dig just a bit deeper, and make life better here. And you can check them out wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Antonia Cerejido, host of the podcast Norco 80 from LAS Studios. We're back with my conversation on survivalism with Dr. Casey Kelly. Throughout the 1990s in particular, a number of high-profile events put uh, negative impressions of survivalism out into the public. Two major incidents involving survivalists happened in 1992 and 1993. You have uh, police shootout in Ruby Ridge uh, and, and Waco. A federal agent has been shot and killed in a confrontation with a fugitive in North Idaho. Ruby Ridge was the home of a family of anti-government survivalists who retreated to a mountaintop in northern Idaho. Randy Weaver, a fugitive on a federal firearms charge, has been holed up in a cabin near Naples for more than a year. A year and a half before the shootout, Randy Weaver, the father, stayed quarantined in their cabin, evading law enforcement, because he had failed to attend his trial on firearm charges. Randy Weaver has told friends all he wants is to be left alone. But with the sudden appearance of military hardware like this, his one-man stand against the law is suddenly taking on the appearance of a full-blown war. When marshals showed up, it began an 11-day shootout. Less than a year later, federal agents would siege a compound in Waco, Texas, that belonged to a group of religious survivalists known as the Branch Davidians, who believed Armageddon was coming. The federal agents believed the group was illegally stockpiling weapons. It happened outside Waco, Texas, a heavily armed compound, a religious cult. Four law enforcement agents are dead. 76 members of the Branch Davidians would die, including 25 children. The FBI said cult members didn't panic as tanks began to ram the compound, yet calmly, apparently under orders from Koresh, began to gather in an underground bunker and donned gas masks. Another high-profile shootout happened in Oklahoma City in 1995. In retaliation for what happened in Waco, Timothy McVeigh, a known anti-government survivalist, set off a bomb in Oklahoma City, exploding a federal building. A major explosion in Oklahoma City in a federal building. Those violent events made survivalism out to be a caricature of, of what we think survivalism is. These events all happened in the 90s, when the internet was still in its infancy. And as other survivalists increasingly began to find each other online, 
they chose to rebrand themselves so as not to be associated with these high-profile violent incidents. Survivalism didn't have a very good uh, reputation associated with it. And so I think prepper was a term that developed to kind of soften the edges a bit um, and to make what we might consider survivalism, to make it seem as something that is not a fringe, but is really um, about just simple preparedness for potential disasters. The term prepper is much more recent, um, and I think it coincides with uh, the development of online communities. And online, the prepper community shared tips and advice. Forums and YouTube videos detailed how to store food, hunt, be generally prepared. This is a YouTuber who goes by the name Never Enough Ammo. And it's just good to be prepared. I have a family to think about, and that's why I do this. but I can't see how some people look at prepping and they, they in their mind, they instantly think the uh, hardcore militia guys who run around stockpiling weapons waiting for World War III or waiting for our government to come and try and arrest everybody who owns a gun. I can see that too. Um, but to look at it from my point of view, I think prepping is something that's perfectly natural. It's something that's been done for generations. We just personally got lazy and stopped doing it. These videos are still popular today. In particular, one trend has held fast, which are the bug-in and bug-out videos. These are videos where people show the camera all the items they have packed in case of an emergency and would be ready to take with them in a moment's notice. And also, uh, I just got a new uh, bug-out bag here, and a lot of you on my other videos have seen the old one. It's a Swiss Tech, uh, which is actually a really good bag. This is my bug-out bag. This is what I use. This is for me and my family. I've got a family of five. Um, so these, are, these items are going to be specific to what we've decided we need. The videos have a similar vibe to haul or unboxing videos in which people share what they bought at the mall that day. Let's get into uh, what we've got in the bags here. Um, all right, first off, flashlight. This is my little Coleman. Two-way radios. Um, this is my med kit. This is obviously a very large med kit. That's because it's for a family of five. Uh, super glue. Electrical tape, duct tape. So I, I separate all my stuff in bags. This is my bag of fire. Well, let's see, I've got three lighters. I've got uh, three boxes of matches. I've got some of the little emergency tea candles, magnesium fire starter in here. Survivalism or prepping is a large business. It's an industry that uh, generates approximately $500 million a year. So it's very, very expensive. That includes everything from underground bunkers, really, really high-capacity rifles, essential oils, gold um, and metal stocks, weapons training. There is an entire cottage industry around doomsday prepping, and it it can be very expensive. Emergency relief revenue saw a 21.7% increase following the 2017 climate disasters. For a growing number of consumers, emergency preparedness isn't just logical. It's a necessity. Wait until you see how much people are willing to pay and how far they're willing to travel to survive the unthinkable. Terrorism, natural disasters. Most families are unprepared. The government recommends emergency bug out bags for your car, home and work. Introducing the flag bug out bag. Prepare your family now for the worst. Call now 1-844-BUG-OUT-8. But even this new, more sanitized online survivalist community has its extremist members. Casey says that after years of following prepper forums online, he wasn't all that surprised to see survivalists at the insurrection at the Capitol in January. 
Yeah, uh, I'll admit that when on the lead up to that day, I was very worried about what was going to happen. And when I saw it unfolding under my eyes, I was absolutely terrified because this is, uh, this is a fantasy that has played itself out in online communities for years. It's one thing to spout off about that on 8chan. It's very another thing to actually bring weapons and bombs into the Capitol. And so my concern, and still is, is that we've crossed some kind of event horizon where this is going to be something that happens more frequently. I hope that it doesn't. But Casey is quick to tell me that while there are extremists within the survivalist community, in his research, he was surprised that the community was more diverse than he anticipated. Something that he discovered when he went to the survivalist trade show, PrepperCon. I expected to see a lot of um, kind of camo-clad mountain men. And when I went there, sure, there were plenty of those people there. But what I saw was all kinds of folks. In 2016, Casey Kelly went to PrepperCon, a gigantic convention for survivalists and preppers held every year in Sandy, Utah. It was a kind of a festive atmosphere. I saw suburban families with their kids in tow. I saw single women. And so, so you're here at PrepperCon in Sandy, Utah. And I've been a prepper all my life, just not realizing. So come down and check out our 6x6 cargo truck, not to mention zombie-proof. Camouflage, hunting gear. I had an interesting moment of surprise when I when I went into the, the convention center. I got to meet um, Miss America 2016. She's a doomsday prepper, and she gave a rousing talk on survivalism. We yes. actually have Ms. America, Julie Harmon. Um, she's also was former Ms. Utah, um, and she her whole platform is preparedness. So she was in the fashion show. She's totally here to help us. She's one of our ambassadors. You know, it really literally threads throughout every single facet of society. And it's not just emergency preparedness, it's for every day too. There were several stars of some survival programs. They happen to be fans of mountain men and they liked what they saw on the show. There's a lot of us that are fans. A hurricane simulator for the kids. Oh my gosh. We've tested it over 120 miles an hour. Um, it's pretty insane. It's really loud and it's a lot of wind. There was a lot of different uh, ways in which they were engaging the apocalypse. We've got a knife fighting tournament. But they didn't look like what I thought. I realized that I had to kind of change my conceptions uh, a little bit, uh, that there was something about survivalism that appealed to all kinds of groups. What's in your bug out bag? Beyond these conferences, survivalism has also entered the luxury industry. You can purchase a multi-million dollar underground bunker complete with spa and barbecue grill. He makes the most expensive, most popular underground bunkers in America. And what are you getting for $10.4 million? Uh, you get an underground swimming pool. And you can even buy a designer bug out bag if you happen to have $10,000 lying around. We have like five different levels of kit now, going from 95, now 10,000. The preps are black, which is what we're looking at. Bag. So with everything going on in the world today and with the political climate that we have, have you seen an increase in sales? Yes, we have. So why do you think survivalism or doomsday prepping is so big right now? One appeal that uh, may explain why there's you know, been such a, a resurgence in popularity of doomsday prepperism or survivalism, I think has been just living in an environment where 
People don't know whether they'll have a retirement or they're working in a gig economy where they can barely cobble together a living, you know, buy a house or have a family. But I think that that makes it seem as if perhaps a better alternative than investing in the stock market or having a retirement plan might be to, to doomsday prep instead. I definitely, I have survivalist tendencies. Like mm-hmm. I have a rooftop garden and definitely during quarantine when I think there was a general feeling of where are we going to get food and we're so interconnected and we should be, it's better for the environment if you have your own garden. Like I went all in. And so I under I understand. And I mean, as a millennial, that feeling of precariousness that comes through both the economic crises we've endured and also climate change. I feel that wholeheartedly. I think anyone does. I, I The thing that's been the question, of course, in this story is like one thing is having a an urban garden. And another thing is robbing a bank to build a, a bunker in Utah, you know? So I'd say the difference today or what, what sort of makes preppers different today is that you have a much wider range of uh, people who participate and varying levels of commitment. Now, to be sure, there are the people who build bunkers, who buy luxury doomsday condos in the middle of Kansas, where there used to be nuclear missile silos. But I think you have people that are much more casual. Um, they might be prepping for uh, a water shortage. Uh, they may be prepping for a natural disaster because of the fear of climate change that I think for whatever reasons, some people are dabbling in this community more than they are fully investing in it. If we're going to really invest in being preppers, why not as a culture prep for the the thing that we know will be our undoing? Climate mm-hmm. change. Hopefully, survivalism can be appropriated as a way of thinking about climate change. My, my fear is that we've individualized survivalism. It's become something that one does and they do it in opposition to their neighbors, believing that they'll, those people will turn into their enemies the moment that um, the shit hits the fan, which is the phrase that preppers like to use. And I think that that's what's really the most tragic thing about survivalism is that we don't do it collectively. So I'd, I, I'd hope that we quit just preparing to protect our family um, and thinking selfishly in that regard, but instead that we might appropriate those values from survivalism as a way of thinking about how we're going to collectively overcome. What can we do collectively to prepare for what we know will be the challenge of, our, of the next 20 years? Dr. Casey Kelly is a professor of media studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His book is titled Apocalypse Man, The Death Drive and the Rhetoric of White Masculine Victimhood. To learn more about the Norco bank robbery of 1980, listen to Norco 80 wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned after the break. I'll be showing you the connection between the Norco robbery and modern day policing today. Thanks for listening to this special broadcast of Take Two. I'm A. Martinez. Stay tuned for more of our Norco 80 special. We'll be right back after this break. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. 
Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Welcome back to Take Two. I'm e. Martinez. Today, we've been doing something just a bit different, listening to a couple of episodes of Norco 80, the hit podcast from LAS Studios. Thanks for making us a part of your day, whether you listen to us on the KPCC app, streaming at kpcc.org, on your smart speaker, or good old-fashioned radio. Welcome back. I'm Antonia Cerejido, the host of the LAist podcast Norco 80, which looks at a bank robbery gone wrong 40 years ago in Riverside County. The podcast also explores the aftermath of the event. There is a very specific way that what happened during the Norco bank robbery has shaped policing today, and it has to do with a video. Deputy Sheriff Rolf Parks was one of the officers in the chase the day of the robbery. And for the two years after the event, Rolf essentially became a movie producer. And from that moment on, things built from me just doing some hand drawings and, uh, and a little narrative to making it into a, a training film. Rolf gathered evidence from the investigation and the radio traffic from that day. And then I had uh, a guy from uh, Disneyland, the, the voice of Disneyland, Jack Wagner, narrated the, uh, the thing. On May 9, 1980, one of the most daring and spectacular bank robberies to occur in the United States took place here. I wanted people to sit in the car with me at the moment, you know, at that day, and get a feeling for what it's like to chase bank robbers who are trying to kill you, you know. Within minutes after the robbery took place, countless units from the Riverside Sheriff's Department and California Highway Patrol descend on the scene. The movie was made into a VHS tape that was distributed to police departments across the country to be viewed during training. It was a way for, for agencies to, you know, to digest this stuff and then come up with ways on their own should they face something like this themselves. For Rolf, the video ended up being more than a reference for agencies. It was a warning. I want people to understand why there was and is an arming of police in America and why we have to have these kind of resources. And we have to have a police force well-armed, prepared, and trained in order to answer that threat. The video was a message that society could collapse if police didn't prepare for the worst. Otherwise, you know, we're going to have havoc. You know, it's like the, the, the bad guys will, will run the world. The Norco training video is still watched at law enforcement agencies across the country today. When I was at the police academy, that bank robbery looms very large in, in sort of police legend. That's Rosa Brooks. Rosa is a law professor at Georgetown University. She also recently spent four years working as a reserve police officer in Washington, D.C. Police violence was very much in the news and somewhat Accidentally, I learned that there was this reserve officer program. Rosa first started thinking about becoming a police officer in 2011. 
And I just from the minute I heard about it, I thought, that is so fascinating. You know, no kidding, they would let me be a cop? A few years later, she would apply and be accepted to the academy. She served in the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department from 2016 to 2020. I think I went in, you know, a little bit thinking to myself, okay, these 22-year-old guys can do it. Like, I'm sure I, you know, like, how hard could it be? And it was so hard. It's just so hard. She began training nights and weekends at the academy. The position was unpaid. It was like doing community service. But she would end up undergoing the same training as the full-time officers, carry the same gun, and patrol the same streets. It was very surprising for a Georgetown law professor to decide to become a, <laughs> not a full-time, but a, yeah. a reserve police officer. What led you to pursue that? You know, I've spent my whole career in one way or another researching and writing about how people make sense of violence. You know, what do we, what do we justify? What do we condemn? You know, I worked on, I worked for human rights groups. I worked for the U.S. Department of State, later for the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, my last book uh, was on war and the military and um, thinking about sort of how we construct these, these stories, these narratives that, in which we tell ourselves, oh, this is necessary. This is not necessary. This is justified. I was just really, really curious um, on top of that. But, but it was really driven by that sense of curiosity of, you know, here's this culture that from the outside seems so opaque and tends to get reduced to these very uh, binary stereotypes. You know, police are heroes. Um, no, police are racist brutes. And I just wanted to find out, you know, so what is it like? You know, what do cops learn about? How do they get trained? What, you know, what do they talk about when the rest of us aren't there? <laughs> um, so I guess it was just curiosity more than anything else. About a year and a half into her service, she decided to write about her experience. In her book, Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City, she ponders the way that police justify the use of force. I've always believed if you want to change a culture, you need to understand it. And understanding it means understanding how the people who are inside it make sense of their world. Nobody ever thinks they're the bad guy. Most people, even as they do things that are really just horrific, are telling themselves, I have to do this, you know, they deserve it, it's better this way, it's unpleasant, but this is vital to achieving this noble end or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. that they, they have a story that they tell themselves. And that for any of us to kind of sit back and say, well, I would never be one of those people who does X or Y, all the evidence of history and social science says, uh-uh almost all of us would do almost anything, no matter how horrific, given the right situational pressures. And therefore, if you've got something, you know, like policing, where you say, how can it be possible that these police do these terrible things and they, that there's racism and that they shoot people and it's terrible, 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 that that's not enough to understand it or change it. You know, you have to be able to understand what are the stories that cops tell each other? What are the stories that they get told when they're being trained that lead them to think for the most part, we have to do it this way. This is the right thing to do. And, and that you have to understand that. And the only way to understand that is to try to get inside that world as much as you can. 
You write about your experience in training and on patrol, including a lot of these like sort of mundane details. Like, you know, one thing that really stuck with me was that how you had to remove all of your equipment to go to the bathroom and how challenging that was. The amount of physical discomfort, it is, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, this I'm sure would be equally true if you, you know, decided to become a landscaper or a, you know, a park ranger, you know, you really realize you're outside. I mean, I, I worked President Trump's inauguration. We went on duty at two in the morning and we didn't get off duty till about 8 p.m. And about 12 hours of that was standing up. And, you know, it made me also understand why just standing is a form of torture, you know, that literally like your legs would swell and, you know, standing there with your heavy equipment on, it hurts. It really did. Uh, it was very humbling and gave me a tremendous amount of respect for what we ask of police officers, you know, that, that you have to know the criminal code. So you know what the right charges are and to put on your report. You have to know how to write the report. You have to know how to put handcuffs on somebody in the right way. You have to know the procedure for booking somebody, you know, all this kind of minutia. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you have to be handling people who are often really upset, really angry, really frightened, really hurt, you know, was just kind of in awe of them. And some of them were very young. And it just made me realize this is really hard to do well. If I had stuck with for another 10 years, maybe I would have gotten good, as good as some of them, but I'm, I'm not actually even sure that I would have. Rosa Brooks is a scholar of war and violence, and in the past has studied the role of the military in unexpected places in society. So I wanted to ask her about the specific way she saw militarization woven into the fabric of American policing, from her perspective as a scholar and as a former officer. In this story, I had a lot of officers, it's now 40 years later, tell me, you know, I wish I could have killed those men. Or they would describe the scene as a fog of war. So I'm I'm really interested in this idea that it's not just the equipment yet, but there's like a culture of militarization. There are all kinds of ways in which policing and police organizations are are paramilitary. You know, from the fact that police academies uh, have recruits wear uniforms and do drill in formation and do push-ups. They're a lot like military boot camps in mm -hmm. certain respects. To the fact, you know, the 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 military rank structure in police departments, the emphasis on chain of command. You know, here in D.C., it's routine for more senior police officers to, if they're sending out an email or giving a talk, to to address their remarks to troops. You know. Uh, and refer to police officers as troops. And, and that kind of military metaphor, it's a battle out there, it's a, you know, it's, uh, it's a war zone out there, are, are constantly used. Mm -hmm. And I do think that those metaphors have an effect on people in terms of even though you also, as a police officer throughout your training and, and afterwards, you constantly are, are told, uh, we're here to work with the community, to protect the community, to have good relationships with community. And that rhetoric and that commitment, which I think is honest, but it sits very uneasily with all of the rhetorical emphasis on war zone, which tends to push you away from a, we work collaboratively with the community and towards, a, you know, the community are the bad guys. <laughs> uh, the community are the people committing crimes. The community are the people trying to kill us. And, and those, those two ideas sit very uneasily together. In your book, you include this chilling statistic that American law enforcement kills 64 times more civilians than law enforcement in the UK, 
adjusting for population. What role do you think militarization plays in that statistic? You know, it's it's really hard to know. Um, and I'm a little bit inclined to think that on the one hand, the focus on military equipment can be a little bit of a red herring mm-hmm. because it makes us sort of get fixated on the the optics. And the optics are bad. No, no, no denying it, right? Police officers and tanks facing down protesters, for instance. But but I, I think that most of the the sort of deeper causes of high levels of police violence uh, in the U.S. are deeper, much, much deeper than that. That being said, there have been a couple of recent studies that do suggest that those police departments that have made greater use of the federal programs that provide surplus military equipment to police departments have had higher use of force rates in general. But it's 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 really squishy. And I do think that gets lost in these discussions. The vast majority of police officers will never fire their weapon except on the range to practice or requalify. According to a survey done by the Pew Research Center, about a quarter of officers say they have ever fired their weapon on the job. Two things are true at once. One is that America has a shockingly high rate of police killings. And the other is that the overwhelming majority of police officers will never be involved in any shooting at all and will never fire their gun and will never even point their gun at someone. And I think we we need to sort of acknowledge both that there is a culture that can lead a small minority of officers, but still too many, to be a little trigger happy uh, while acknowledging that the vast majority of cops don't do that. So as you point out, these situations in which officers fire their weapons are pretty rare, but it does feel like there's a lot of fear from officers about needing to be ready for these kinds of scenarios. I mean, I think that it is it would be a fair statement to say that Americans in general are very bad at thinking about risk and statistical risk and probabilities and that we tend to overreact, um, you know, when something horrific happens, um, we tend to assume that it's going to be happening much more frequently than it necessarily will end up happening. And I, and I think we see that in terms of school shootings too, for instance, you know, that they're, they happen much, much, much more often in this country than in any other country. They're absolutely horrific, but at the same time, statistically, the odds that any given child or school will be involved in a school shooting are still extremely low, and yet American public schools, uh, you know, it is now routine for them to have metal detectors and, you know, armed police officers at the doors. If there's a school shooting in a school that doesn't have security and doesn't have metal detectors, everybody says, how could you leave that school so unprotected? On the other hand, there are, there are real costs in having our children go to schools that increasingly resemble armed encampments. That comes with cost, too. And I think the same is true for policing. When we return, the conversations that police are or aren't having about the future of policing. Thanks for listening to the special broadcast of Take Two. I'm A. Martinez. Stay tuned for more of our Norco 80 special. We'll be right back after this break. I'm L.A. senior education reporter, Mariana Dale. The communities that are more marginalized or that do not have access, 
are the ones that are in most need. I help families understand, navigate, and engage with the forces that shape education from kindergarten through high school. How do I explain to my daughter that the same day you got to celebrate a birthday, you got to celebrate the day your mama left. And I make space for students to tell their own stories. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Welcome back to Take Two. I'm E. Martinez. Let's get back to listening to one of the hit podcasts from Southern California Public Radio's podcast team. Welcome back. I'm Antonia Cerejido, the host of the LAist podcast Norco 80, which looks at a bank robbery gone wrong 40 years ago in Riverside County. When Rosa began serving as a reserve officer, several high-profile killings of Black men, including Eric Gardner, Philando Castile, and Alton Sterling, were in the news. At the time, police reform talking points weren't as big a part of the public discourse as they are now. These days, Rosa says she has noticed that terms like defund the police get a knee-jerk reaction from other cops, even if they agree with the basic principles of the idea. I do think the term gets people's backs up. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and that's part of the reason that most police officers go, oh, no, that's terrible. You know, our problem is that I can't, you know, look how junky our cars are. We need more money, not less. Um, but I, I think police officers are usually amongst the first to say we're being asked to do things that we are not good at and we're being asked to do things that we are not trained for. I'm curious, as someone who has been an officer and who has thought about the bigger picture regarding resources, how do you view funding shifts as a way to change policing? You know, I, th- I think actually with policing, as with the military, um, the Defense Department, asking, you know, is the defense budget too big or, you know, is there too much money for police is, is sort of the wrong question. In a way, I think it's, um, well, what do you want the military to do? You know, what do you want police to do? You know, but so, so I think it's, it's, I think we get a little too fixated on this kind of, aha, you know, there's just too much money, there should be less, rather than having that more complicated, more difficult, more nuanced discussion that says, all right, what can police and only police do? Okay, so I, w- I want to bring it back to the Norco Bank robbery. After it happened, you know, officers were so fearful, they started carrying their own weapons, even though the sheriff told them not to. And one officer told the press, quote, better to be judged by 12 than to be carried by six, which means, you know, better to stand in front of a jury in court than to be killed. I have heard many police officers say that many times. What do you think it means to have a police force that is both trained to fear every encounter and think it could turn deadly, but is also told they have to be a respectable symbol of authority? Oh, yeah. Um, no, it's it's a really hard one. And, and I think part of it is would-be police training that, you know, police training should be giving police officers much more interaction with community members from day one at the police academy. I think the way we currently train police officers in all too many departments really gives them a very skewed perception of the degree of danger they're likely to face and a skewed perception of the nature of the people they're going to encounter. 
And, and that is just fixable. It is fixable. It is not that hard. Uh, I think police academies should be demilitarized themselves. I think the paramilitary approach to police training is good at teaching young officers to say yes, sir, and to yell at people, but it's not so good at teaching them to have thoughtful, compassionate interactions with people. If anything, it's a kind of increasing the emphasis both on de-escalation and on being really fit and really well trained. So if something goes wrong, you can you can probably handle it without needing to pull out your weapon. And and I think that that kind of approach, which we are seeing in an increasing number of academies and training programs, is the kind of approach that we need. We're training you to be the people who protect others, and we're training you to be the people who can tell the difference between the situations that are likely to go bad and those that won't. And if there's a mistake, the cost should be on us because we're the ones who are armed, paid and trained, not on ordinary people who are not armed, paid or trained to take these risks. While Rosa critiques the militarization of police, she does suggest that policing could learn from some aspects of the military in the way that officers view the risks that come with the job. The military accepts that people are going to get hurt um, and some people are going to get killed within their own forces. Um, There's a bit more of a culture of sacrifice of, you know, yes, we take risks with our lives, but that is what we are trained and paid to do. And we accept this as part of the job. Whereas in policing, there's a little bit more of a culture of you've got a right to go home safe. You know, your goal is to go home safe. If a police officer goes into an encounter thinking, The most important thing is for me to keep members of the community safe, including criminal suspects. You know, even if that means some risk to me, I think you you maybe get a a different approach to solving problems. I need to be aware of, of the reality that there could be a threat, but my fundamental duty here is to keep the community safe. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Rosa Brooks' book is Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. She's a tenured law professor at Georgetown University and a scholar on war and violence. To learn more about the Norco bank robbery of 1980, listen to Norco 80 wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more about the militarization of police and gun culture in the U.S., I will be hosting a virtual event on May 20th. RSVP for Norco 80, The Aftermath at elias.com slash aftermath. I'm Antonia Cerejido. Thank you so much for joining me this hour, and I hope to see you at the events. It's A. Martinez. Thanks for joining us for this special hour of Take Two, featuring two conversations from the Norco 80 podcast. As Antonia said earlier, be sure to download and listen to the rest of the podcast wherever you get your pods. Take Two will be back tomorrow. Talk to you then. <laughs>